2: The world is actually at the party. The grown-ups are having a big, big party and the house is on fire, but uh, they just keep drinking and partying on with no, no thought of tomorrow and, and the things to come.
3: On October the 18th, 2016, a momentous case was filed on the steps of the Oslo District Court. An alliance of people from all around the world gathered to take a bold new step in the fight against climate change.
2: The experience when I came to Oslo, when we launched the lawsuit, it was quite powerful.
3: One person who was standing on the steps of the court that day was Sámi politician Beska Nellias.
2: In Sámi, you can call me many ways. One of them is Asla Neljas Odmuna or Katja
3: Jovsa Jovna Mareta The Sámi people are native to the northernmost part of Scandinavia with their homeland stretching across four countries, Norway, Sweden, Finland and Russia. So we have quite an
2: area that's our homeland, and our homeland is, uh, we call it, Sápmi.
3: Around 100,000 Sami people live here, in a region settled long before any borders were drawn up.
2: I live in the northern part of Norway, on the Norwegian side of Sápmi. From here, it's maybe 130 kilometers to a city. When I wake up and and go out in the morning, then in the summertime, I see forest and I see pure nature. In the winter, I see, of course, lots of snow. We have not many roads up here and we have not many big uh, industrial uh, areas and so on. We have uh, clean water and we have clean air. Uh, we can go to but almost any river and, and drink water directly from it. Uh, big rivers and small creeks and so on. And we can we can safely eat all the food we can gather here. So I'm, I'm very thankful that... Uh, We have managed to take care of this land and water so long that that's still possible. Every day is actually a day you can learn and you can do something new. Personally, I try to learn the traditional ways as uh, deep as possible. It has been said by, by the Pope, look to indigenous people and their traditional lives. And, and ways of living and that's the answer for, for
3: this over-exploitation. Having survived on the northern extremes of Europe since the end of the last ice age, living in harmony with nature is deeply ingrained in Sami folklore. There was
2: this almighty god we call Ipmil. He had some children and one of the children was the son. He asked if the sun could take care of this world he had created for the people. The Sami people were very glad the sun took care of them. Ipmil had uh, created this world with such uh, richness. It was meat for everyone, fish for everyone. Everything was good. The son, he created two sons. These two sons, they lived very good lives in, in Sápmi. They had everything they needed. It was just to go out and pick food and pick the resources you needed. So it was no worries in this world. But then some day, the younger brother, he started to envy his older brother. Why, why did he have so much, even though he had it himself also? But he moved uh, with these uh, dark thoughts. He moved a little further down to the shadows, where the sun didn't reach, so his father couldn't see him so good. This uh, younger brother, he, he started to get even, even darker thoughts there, as further down the shadows he moved. Then he saw into the light, and his brother, he had everything, and he had almost nothing he started to come back and grab things to let his, his dark thoughts darken the light also. So at last, uh, everything was darkness. I think this story, it's suitable for today's world because man, he, he thinks he can just take everything he wants and he has no, no thought of tomorrow or for the coming generations. You should be happy with what the world provides, and not over-exploit the world. If you look closely and you live live in harmony with the world, there is everything you need. Once you start to use resources that you don't necessarily have to use, then the
3: darkness comes. It is less than 200 years since the dawn of the fossil fuel era, And we are now pushing our planet's climate into the unknown, into territory never seen before in human history. Faced with this unprecedented threat, a global movement is rising in defiance, determined to fight climate change in a new and powerful way by bringing it into the courtroom. With the government of Norway pressing ahead with plans to open up new areas of the Arctic for oil drilling, Greenpeace and Nature & Youth have decided to stand in their way. And in November 2017, with the eyes of the world upon them, they will argue in a court of law that what lies beneath the Arctic is unburnable carbon. The world currently consumes almost 100 million barrels of oil a day. That's about 6,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools being burnt every 24 hours. From air travel to plastics we have an insatiable appetite for the liquid which has seeped into pretty much every aspect of our lives. We move on oil, we wear oil, we listen to music through oil. But how did we get to this point? The story of oil began in America when a man by the name of Edwin Drake drilled the first commercial well and changed the world forever.
0: It was a particularly American phenomenon to turn oil into a commercial product to be removed from the ground and sold in large quantities. And that dramatically changed the relationship of humans to oil and oil to the earth.
3: That's Antonia Juhasz, author and investigative journalist. Her work centres around energy and oil policy.
0: The first big oil find in the United States was in the mid 1850s when the first oil well was struck in Pennsylvania. And it also very quickly came under the control essentially of one man, and that was John D. Rockefeller who founded the Standard Oil Company in 1870. The production literally just exploded. Once people figured out how to get oil out of the ground in large amounts, they just did a lot of it. When Rockefeller began consolidating his control over oil production and then export out of the United States, It made him very quickly one of the wealthiest, most powerful people and his corporation, Standard Oil Company, in the United States and in the world. It didn't take very long for oil to start being pumped out of the ground in large amounts for it to become a dominant political and economic uh, resource.
3: The decades after the American Civil War was a time of extraordinary change in the United States. Oil gushed forth, the railroads were built, electrification spread across the country. But out of this rapid industrial revolution, enormous corporate monopolies emerged. And the largest and most powerful of them all was Rockefeller's Standard Oil.
0: This is also a really important period of time to think about because it In response to Standard Oil, in response to this corporate power being built in the United States, it was simultaneously a period of incredible public organizing and resistance. of Workers, farmers, uh, immigrants coming together to create a balance of power where the rights of people would be protected and ultimately resulted in the breakup of Standard Oil in 1911 into many, 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 much smaller corporate parts, with the idea being that if the corporations were smaller, then the governments would be more powerful than the companies.
3: This landmark judgment came directly from the US Supreme Court, the principle that no industrial interests should be more powerful than the rights of the people.
0: And essentially it took about another hundred years or maybe less for those ideas to be forgotten for the necessity of keeping corporations to be manageable uh, abandoned
4: as you know exxon on mobile today
0: signed a definitive agreement to merge the two companies the oil oil companies started There's merging rapidly business. in the 80s And these companies regained, moving into the 2000s with the Bush administration, global power in a way that they hadn't for
4: many decades. Congress has restricted access to key parts of the outer continental shelf. I've called on Congress to remove the ban.
3: One country broke the mold, however, putting its people first from the moment it discovered oil in the 1960s. Norway is a country which
5: has... The history of standing up to oil companies and it's a big part of Norwegian
3: identity. That's Einstein Vestre, former head of nature and youth and legal team lead for Greenpeace in the upcoming court case.
5: This little country with like I don't know how many million inhabitants the country had when we the country found oil. And I was almost about to say when we found oil, because that's how it feels. They had all these oil companies coming knocking on the door and, and the Norwegian society said, No, no, we want your help, but you're going to serve us. Not just bowing down to oil companies, but kind of making some demands. That story is, I find some pride in that myself. And I think that that pride sticks strong with the
3: Norwegian identity. Einstein has a younger brother, Torger, who's a central board member of Nature and Youth.
6: The way we learned about oil and gas was as something that all of Norway should be grateful for. That's a gift from the gods, so to speak, that has helped their country. What's special with Norway is not the fact that we have oil. That's just pure stroke of luck. It's how we manage that oil.
3: When oil was first discovered on the Norwegian shelf, the government adopted a series of measures nicknamed the Ten Oil Commandments to ensure the nation as a whole would reap the benefits. Norway even founded its own petroleum company called Statoil. Fifty years after that first discovery and Norway has become one of the most desirable places on earth to live, with some of the highest levels of social welfare. It has used its oil revenues to amass the world's largest sovereign wealth fund, a pot equivalent to over one trillion dollars owned by the people of Norway themselves.
6: We've become the richest country in the world. At one point, we have to say stop. Not everything that was a great idea in the 80s is necessarily a great idea today.
3: Moving beyond fossil fuels will be a huge challenge, however. Growing up in the country, oil is everywhere.
5: Uh, Oil is kind of a natural part of the society. Like having these supply shipping companies uh, sponsor my football field, that's just how it is, kind of.
6: Statoil sponsors a lot of cultural institutions, universities, really tapping into many parts of the region culture. I have uh,
5: several family members who have worked at oil refinery plants. And I <laughs> we have this work week, like employment week in lower secondary school. I used to be uh, ashamed of saying this, but I was employed at uh, at Korste, which is one of these uh, oil refi- refinery plants. Uh, so it's really like before I had this awakening. And I've later campaigned against gas-powered plants at that same location.
6: The oil companies are really involved Uh, with politicians, there's almost a revolving door going between like Statoil and the Department of Oil and Energy, where the same people are getting jobs. So that is uh, pretty um, messed up, actually.
3: The public mood does appear to be changing, though. A poll taken last August showed that for the first time, more Norwegians favoured leaving some oil in the ground to protect the climate than were in favour of bringing it up. With the national dependency on fossil fuels moving increasingly into the spotlight, we decided to make contact with the petroleum industry itself to see how it views Norway's future with oil. First, we tried Statoil, the main company awarded drilling rights in the 23rd licensing round, the subject of November's court case. And then, after answerphone...
0: Welcome to voicemail service. After answer Until phone 20th of voice mail service. Please leave a message after the tone.
3: We finally got through to someone. Hello, it's uh, He said they would pass on our request to the communication manager responsible for exploration on the Norwegian continental shelf. Later that day, we received the following email from him.
1: Hi Cormac, thanks for the mail to us and the invitation. However, this is not something we will pursue from our side. Please feel free to gain insights and facts available on our Barents Sea Exploration Site. I hope you find it useful and relevant for your series. Please consider the environment before printing this email.
3: Next we call the Ministry of Petroleum and Energy, which handed out the new oil licences. And then the Norwegian Petroleum Directorate, which regulates the industry. After being Hello. passed from person to person, we finally found someone who was willing to speak with us. Hello?
1: Hi there, it's Tommy Hansen from Norwegian Oil and
3: Gas Tommy Hansen is Director of Communications and Industry Policy for the Norwegian Oil and Gas Association. Could you just describe for me what your association does?
1: The association is an association for...
3: Uh, They're the gas. leading employers' association for the industry and have been representing petroleum companies for over 30 years.
1: And our job is to look after their uh, interests as well as coordinating some projects that uh, go across the uh, the industry. We have a very good dialogue with the Norwegian government. They are the regulators. Uh, They make the rules. We experience that they are very uh, interested in in having our views. Uh, But of course, we also have different roles.
3: Their work also involves communicating with the public.
1: Of course, it's important for us to... To remind the society about what this industry is doing for Norway in terms of jobs, in terms of income, uh, because this is not something that is obvious to anyone. So uh, reminding people about that is another form that we are
3: working with. And at the core of their message is the idea of competence.
1: This industry probably represents uh, the very highlight of competence in the nation of Norway. So it has been uh, a very, very rich, and good, story. Now we need to make sure that this story continues in a, in a very good way.
3: For many, this competence is now being pushed beyond its limit. The new frontier of the Arctic that has been opened for oil drilling is further north than ever before, in an area known as the Barents Sea estimates suggest that roughly half of Norway's undiscovered fossil fuel lies beneath these waters.
5: Norway is a very long country, but if you also count in the the area which is sea, it becomes a vast, vast area. And that is, of course, because we have the economic ownership over an area of 200 nautical miles out from the coastal line. And it's, it's within this, and as well as what's called a continental shelf where you find the oil. But on the other hand, in the Barents Sea, this continental shelf, it stretches out for very long and and, and that's what makes it possible for Norway to approach the marginal ice zone and still be able to say, we have the right to drill here, we have the right to exploit this. We're really lucky in Norway because we've won in the geological lottery, (laughs) but uh, it can't last forever.
0: Most of the initial oil used all around the world was oil that had been found in large reservoirs under the ground. These were areas where you could really just essentially poke a hole into the earth and oil would pop out. And that was, from a technical perspective, from the industry side, it was easy oil, easy to get out. But most of the oil that's found in large pockets like that is already owned by somebody, and a lot of it's already been used, and we're consuming it faster than it's being discovered.
3: Despite the reality that we've already discovered more fossil fuel than we can afford to burn anyway, the oil adventure has continued to march on regardless.
0: So that started moving companies into looking at what's called unconventional oil or frontier products, where it's much more difficult Frontier oil is more more often found in rocks or in shale. It's also found offshore, so in deep, deep, deep waters, in frozen waters like the Arctic, in places where we had decided we weren't going to drill for oils.
3: Nonetheless, the Norwegian oil industry is able to move forward with their plans, reassuring the public with what is so far a pretty clean record. There's the argument that we're taking you know, bigger and bigger risks by going further and further north and further from the shoreline and into darker areas. But what would you say to that?
1: I would say that uh, this is not the way we see it. I think uh, it's very important to remember that not one drop of oil has reached the coast of Norway from from any offshore um, platform or, or field. There is darker uh, during winter and it's slightly colder. But both of these things uh, one has been preparing for and working with for many, many years. Uh, If the oil industry uh, starts something, you would have a completely different standard and setup of safety measures, of barriers, uh, and equipment to handle any kind of oil spill. The oil companies would never, ever go into an error if there was a slight doubt that you can ensure safe operations.
0: No oil company has ever told me oil spills are not going to happen ever. They all know that it's part of the cost of doing business. They believe that the world wants oil and they're providing it and it's a risky business and stuff happens. What they will say most certainly is we're putting in all the money we can. We're putting in all the prevention that we can. We're doing it as safe as we can. We're doing it the best that we can. And that is That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
4: I have seen the effects of oil in uh, various ways on various wildlife. This is ecologist and writer Carl Safina. When I was younger, a a lot of oil tankers would just purge their tanks with seawater. And there was a lot of oil floating around a lot of the ocean and getting on a lot of the beaches. When I was a kid... If you were barefoot on the beach, you would come home with what was called beach tar on your feet. In fact, there's a Joni Mitchell song that refers to it. When I was in my 20s, I volunteered uh, at an animal rescue place for wild animals. And many of the birds that came in were water birds that were oiled by little spills or by chronic oil that they had picked up. uh, And their feathers would be matted, their waterproofing would be destroyed. And we would have to try to clean them up and rehabilitate them. But then I also went down to the uh, Gulf Coast of the U.S. during the Deepwater Horizon blowout crisis... And that was an absolutely miserable, miserable experience. The BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico in April
3: 2010 was the largest offshore oil spill in world history.
4: That whole debacle, the the incredible incompetence and irresponsibility that caused it, it blew because it was not a functioning production well. It was an exploration well where they hit a lot of oil. So they're supposed to fill up and cap that hole so that a different kind of rig can come there and and, uh, reopen it and get the oil. Well, the, the material failed... It failed because of the negligence of the company that made it because they were trying to do it very cheaply and they hadn't tested the batch uh, and they were cutting corners. And when they had an indication of the failure, they ignored the indication because they were in a hurry and uh, they wanted to get out of there. There was an argument about what to do. Should they stop? Is it okay? When you get an indication that there's a lot of pressure, you are keeping a miles long column of material, water and other thick material, on that pressure. It's like having a, a straw in a carbonated drink, but having your thumb on the straw. And you're not supposed to take your thumb off the straw unless your instruments are showing that there's no pressure, which means the cement is holding but the instruments said there was a lot of pressure and they decided that there must be a problem with the instruments. And there was a shift change and they took their foot off that brake and when they did that, it came roaring up at them.
5: Of the massive oil spill off the coast of Louisiana approaching
4: land tonight. I, I was in the Gulf Coast a number of times that summer. I flew right over the site yeah, yeah, where yeah, the all the oil out. was gushing. Slick coming from the Deepwater Horizon blowout looked like the ocean had been beaten to a pulp. It, it, it looked bruised, it was purple and brick red and from the air it stretched as far as you could see to the horizon and uh, all these ships and things were there scrambling around trying to do things none of which was helping and i knew that there were turtles trying to breathe and i knew that there were whales and dolphins trying to breathe and I knew that there were people who were uh, totally cut off from their source of income and their source of emotional relief in the world. The most affecting story that I heard was a fishing guide And this story, I think, illustrates uh, the horror that we unleashed on innocent creatures and the helplessness of people. Uh, He was was fishing right after the blowout, thinking that he was going to get a a little bit of fishing and squeeze out a couple of extra days before the oil came his way. And a dolphin showed up right next to the boat partly covered in oil with, with oil spattering from its blowhole. And he tried to move away from it, and it followed the boat and, and appeared next to the boat again and did that again. And he had the very strong feeling that the dolphin was asking for help because dolphins just don't do things like that there. And he had never seen a dolphin come over to the boat and just stay there waiting. And he left because there was nothing he could do for it.
0: One of the things that we've learned is that that oil hasn't gone away and instead settled as a carpet and sort of a ring around the ocean like you would have a ring around a bathtub. Um, I was in a submarine at one point at the bottom of the ocean in the Gulf of Mexico, looking at this blanket of death that the spill had created on the bottom of the ocean. That oil continues to impact the ocean community. It impacts phytoplankton. It's being found in the eggs of birds hundreds and hundreds of miles away. If you have an oil spill at the bottom of the ocean, you're never going to get all the oil. It's too much oil at too great a distance in the middle of water. And that's a critical lesson for moving forward with Arctic drilling.
4: When I heard that Norway was going to start uh, opening up the Arctic for oil production, I reacted the way I react to a lot of news. I, I've, I think it's exactly the wrong thing to do. In the Gulf of Mexico, it was a warm place with all of the oil industry right there. You could, you could do anything you wanted with boats or helicopters. If this happened in a cold place in the winter when it's dark, especially in the ocean in the Arctic, would not be retrievable. In a cold area with bad weather, the oil uh, basically will be oil for um, many decades or centuries. It's really a nightmare scenario. It seems set for something terrible to happen.
3: The Arctic is the last great unexplored frontier for fossil fuels and may hold as much as one third of the world's remaining undiscovered oil and gas. The bitter irony is that as our planet's climate continues to warm and as the ice continues to melt, more and more of the Arctic waters will become accessible for oil drilling. One remote place which is particularly vulnerable is the unique and pristine environment of Bear Island, which lies deep in the Arctic Circle above Norway. In July of this year, Greenpeace activists Stephanie Meltzer and Ulvar Arnkvern travelled to the island to highlight the ecological importance of this untouched landscape. It's possible to
2: beach land
3: here. Oh,
2: that's
0: good. But they have to climb about 50 metres up. OK, you can do that.
3: <laughs> Bayer Island is home to one of the biggest seabird colonies in the Northern Hemisphere, and its remoteness makes it critical for migratory birds as they travel both north and south.
2: The bird area here is uh, very unique and it's uh, a lot of uh, the birds are nesting here and then they're living most of the time when they're not nesting out in the Barents Sea. So it's key.
3: The island used to be home to wandering polar bears. But with the Barents Sea having lost over 50% of its ice coverage in the past 20 years, these visits have become an increasingly rare occurrence.
2: long time ago when I was doing hunting and uh, trying to mining and all these things Mm -hmm. here. And everything that is older than from after the war, after uh, 1945, is protected and it's not allowed to touch it or anything like that. Uh,
3: Despite the Norwegian government establishing the island as a nature reserve in 2002, Four of the blocks granted in the 23rd licensing round lie close enough that in the event of a spill or a blowout, oil would reach the shore within days.
6: It's icy in the winter season, and it's also very far away from any infrastructure. And apart from that, there are no methods to clean oil or remove oil from the ice. Drilling in the Arctic is a no-go.
4: The Arctic is a fragile place and it's unlike other places on Earth. Everything that lives there is very specially adapted there and there's very little resilience because the opportunity to grow is very short. It's not a place where bounce back is what springs to mind when you're there. I first became interested in nature as a very small child, and I'm not exactly sure why I did, because I lived in a tenement flat in Brooklyn, New York, where there was essentially no nature at all. But where we moved to uh, was in the suburbs of Long Island, New York, only about uh, maybe 20 miles from Manhattan. And the... The only wildness around me was a few remaining woodlot. I used to go to the woods, and then one day, there were a lot of bulldozers knocking down all the trees in my favorite woods. I was viscerally nauseated and permanently traumatized because it, it showed me that loving a place is not enough. You have, to, you have to work, and there will always be forces against you. And that's always been true, and it's going to be true for quite a while.
3: November's case, however, isn't just about environmental rights. It also comes down to economics. In 2014, the price of oil crashed worldwide. Having reached a peak of almost $120 a barrel, prices began to plummet. And by 2016, when the government of Norway awarded the new Arctic oil licences, the price had dropped to just $45 a barrel. This had dramatic consequences for Norway's economy. 50,000 people, a fifth of the industry's workforce, lost their jobs and state revenues from the sector fell by almost 40%. Is Are is new ventures like this even profitable anymore for Norway as a, as a, as a country?
1: First of all, um, what we do know from the history is that the oil price has gone up and it's gone yeah. down. No oil company would uh, start any project uh, that they are not convinced would be profitable. And uh, uh, there is now coming reports saying that uh, they are now seeing that projects on the Norwegian continental shelf are uh, profitable. In you know, a very, very low price scenario.
0: And one of the things that we've seen with the fall in the price of oil is a race with the biggest oil companies in the world to cut as much money as possible out of the pursuit of oil. And that is a deeply dangerous trend if it is coupled with moving into riskier environments at the same time. I saw an estimate from the government of Norway that drilling in the Arctic in Norway could be done at $35 a barrel for the price of oil or less. That is shocking. That means that companies are going bare bones. That's almost no money for the price of oil.
3: Many argue that the price of oil has fallen so low and could fall even lower because we are at the beginning of a great energy revolution which is transforming the global economy, away from carbon-fueled capitalism and towards renewable energy. Since 2009, the cost of solar power has fallen by 80% and wind power by 60%. And in 2014, the story came full circle when the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, a fortune built on the profits of big oil, announced that it was withdrawing all investments from fossil fuels. For the first time in Norway's history, the question long considered crazy is now being asked for purely economic reasons of profit and loss. Should the country move beyond oil? Young people like Einstein and Torgir are leading the drive for change.
5: It's going to be a big change uh, to Norwegian society and to Norwegian economy. It's also a change we have to go through. And at some point, the world will say, no, thank you to Norwegian oil anyway.
6: In a way, also, everyone in Norway has to at some level make a sacrifice, and we are all are going to feel it because we are prospering so much from the oil right now. I believe that if we hang on to the oil industry until the very last end, then our society the Norwegian society will take a pretty big hit. But if we can make that responsible shift as early as possible, we can steer away it's like the it's like the Titanic. If we just start turning early enough, we, we won't hit the iceberg.
3: Herein lies one of the key arguments which Greenpeace and Nature and Youth will make when they face the government in court this November. Unlike many other oil-producing nations, Norway does not sell licences. It doesn't demand that oil companies pay up front for the right to drill. Instead, Norway awards licences and actually pays for almost 80% of the oil company's drilling costs. The plan being that they will recover this money by taxing the oil once production and selling begins. But with the oil price so low, this plan may ultimately backfire, leaving the state with a massive bill. It is the people of Norway themselves, and not the oil companies, who will feel almost all of the economic pain, almost all of the loss, if these new Arctic oil licences prove to be unprofitable. history has taught us, however, that a fundamental change as big as this one needs to start with the people. It requires individuals to join together and actively draw a line in the sand.
0: I think there are many similarities between the successful movements of the 1880s, 1890s, turn of the century in the United States that did succeed and the modern movements. One of the key parallels is that you have people coming together across very different experiences, environments, backgrounds to organize together and to organize in very creative ways, using protests, which worked in the past, using creative nonviolent resistance as people did in the past. In the last 100 years, a new idea has really emerged and taken hold, and some people credit the original idea for uh, in Ecuador, some people credit it in Nigeria, but these are both two very oil wealthy countries where people in those countries said, you know, just because we have oil doesn't mean we have to take it out of the ground. And it turned out that that idea was also being matched by climate analysts in particular and climate scientists in particular who came to the realization that. In order to stop the very worst impacts of climate change, a minimum of 80% of fossil fuels need to stay in the ground.
5: And so we're using some of the best available climate science to try and get
0: our I think that is uniting people, people from a scientific a background uh, with concerns on climate change, and that's one of the things that we're to people on the, the ground who live where the emissions. oil is being produced. The oil companies don't have that dependency. They can just go somewhere else and extract oil. To people who want to stand in solidarity with those suffering the worst impacts.
5: On November 8, 2013, the strongest typhoon in the world met the strongest people. Thank you.
0: If the natural environment isn't going to tell the companies where to stop, the public has to be the one that tells the companies where to stop.
2: It is a turning point at the moment. It has to turn if we are going to give our children a livable planet. There is no other option in this matter. August
3: 2017, three months before the case goes to court. People from across the world who are fighting climate cases in their own countries come together in one place, the Lofoten Islands in northern Norway. Climate campaigners from the Philippines Youth Plaintiffs or Children's Trust from the United States. The Senior Women for Climate Protection from Switzerland. This is a global movement that spans both generations and national borders. And by gathering in a single location, they want to send a powerful and united message to the world. Now is the time that we must end the age of oil. If you've enjoyed listening to Unburnable and feel that this is a story that should be heard, please share online and rate this episode on iTunes. It really helps. And if you want to find out more about what you can do to support the court case, please visit savethearctic.org forward slash unburnable. This episode of Unburnable was brought to you by the team at Radio Wolfgang. It featured Beska Nelias, Antonia Juhas, Einstein Vestra, Thorgeir Vestra, Tommy Hansen, Carl Safina, Stephanie Meltzer, Ulvar Arnkvern, and was narrated by me, Cormac McAuliffe. The producers were Ivor Manley, Natalia Rodriguez, and Cormac McAuliffe. Sound design by Ivor Manley, with original music by Paul Fitzpatrick. Additional sound recording by Robert Longman and Christian Aslund. The executive producers were Harry Watson and Colum Roach. Thank you, and until the next episode.